just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hopefully your day is going well. It is a Saturday. And tomorrow, I'm heading off to Georgia. You'll have a podcast that I recorded early Sunday morning to listen to. And then after that, you'll have some pre-recorded podcasts. I have one with Ed, one with a listener named Jenna, one with a listener named Trevor, and then there'll be a couple more by me. So you'll be covered while I'm gone. And I'll get back just in time because on Thursday, I'll be back Thursday afternoon and Thursday night is the next January 6th hearing in prime time. And up to this point this week, there's been a lot of shit going on, some interesting stuff, and that's the kind of things we're going to be talking about today. Now, a lot of people are wondering, what's going on down in Georgia? Fonnie Willis, the investigation, the grand jury? Well, some things just came up, and I thought you'd be interested in hearing about them. In the latest sign that she is moving rapidly in her investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis has sent so-called target letters to prominent Georgia Republicans informing them that they could be indicted for their role in a scheme to appoint alternate electors pledged to the former president despite Joe Biden's victory in the state, according to legal sources familiar with the matter. Okay, Fonnie Willis is giving them a heads up. These are politicians, state politicians in Georgia, and saying, look, man, you might get indicted for that bullshit you pulled after the election, the fake electors and all that bullshit. Yeah, you might be in trouble. Now, this has got to freak out these Republican politicians. The move by Willis, a Democrat, could have a major political implications in a crucial battleground state with high-profile races for governor in the U.S. Senate this fall. Among the recipients of the target letters, the sources said, are GOP State Senator Burt Jones, Governor Brian Kemp's running mate for lieutenant governor. Oh, that should put a hitch in that little campaign. Maybe giving Stacey Abrams a little bit of a boost. David Schaefer, the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, the main guy. And State Senator Brandon Beach. Now, Jones and Schaefer were among those who participated in a closed-door meeting at the state capitol on December 14, 2020, in which 16 Georgia Republicans selected themselves <laughs> as the electors for the state, although they had no legal basis for doing so. Now, Schaefer, according to a source who was present, presided over the meeting, conducting it as though it were an official proceeding in which those presented voted themselves as bona fide electors in Georgia, which they were not. What they were doing was illegal, and they were far from bona fide. And then they signed their names to a declaration to that effect that was sent to the National Archives. <laughs> so they made up this document, sent it to the National Archives, hoping maybe they won't notice. 
Yeah, well, they noticed. The offices or spokespersons for Jones, Schaefer, and Beach did not respond to the request for comment. Willis, in an interview, declined any comment on the target letters, but she confirmed she is considering another potentially controversial move. Wait for it. Requesting that Donald Trump himself testify under oath to the special grand jury investigating his conduct. Oh, can you imagine if Donnie Trump gets a subpoena from Fonnie Willis? Well, of course, he'll try to fight it, and of course, he will delay it, but it won't work. He's going to have to sit and talk to them as well. Yes, said Willis, when asked if there's any chance Trump will be called to testify. I think it's something that we're still weighing and evaluating. She also said she had spoken to Dwight Thomas, who has been retained to represent Trump, as recently as Thursday. So she's talking to Trump's lawyer about this prospect. She declined to say what they talked about. Thomas did not respond to requests for comment. So shit is heating up in Georgia. I told you about this Fonnie Willis. She doesn't give a fuck if he's the president. She sees laws broken and she's going after them. And she's even potentially targeting Republican members of the Senate and the House in her very own state. Oh, there's got to be some Republicans that are pissed off at Fonnie Willis. But again, like I said, she doesn't give a fuck. This is going to be fun to watch. Some people think that Fonnie Willis will be the first one to indict Donald Trump, and that's distinctly possible. But we'll see what happens. Um, And as I've said before, the first person who indicts Donald Trump will start a mad rush of indictments. Nobody wants to be the first. But again, (laughs) Fonnie Willis doesn't give a fuck. So once she does it, expect some other people to follow suit and uh, issue some indictments. Now, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 situation issued a subpoena. Now, listen to this. This is a good one, too. They issued a subpoena to the U.S. Secret Service, marking the first time the panel has been publicly done so for an executive branch agency. Now, you know what's going on there. We were talking about that the other day. Uh, The the, uh, Secret Service, of course... Was, supposed to, was asked to turn over text messages for January 5th and January 6th regarding the insurrection. They were asked for it. And then a couple of days after that, oops, they disappeared. They were changing their phones or their systems or something, and they accidentally <laughs> erased all those text messages, but only from the 5th and the 6th. Well, that seems kind of weird. And as I mentioned to Ed Ed the other day on the podcast, uh, there's a lot of funny shit going on with the Secret Service. You know, we had the Secret Service head recently quit. Now, he was put in place by Donald Trump, and he just recently resigned. And then all this shit starts to come out. That seems a little suspicious. You also remember when Mike Pence was being led out of the Capitol on January 6th down to the parking garage. The Secret Service said, hey, get in the car. We'll get you out of here and get you to safety. 
But Mike Pence apparently understood something about the Secret Service or Donald Trump or just the situation in general. He said, I'm not getting in that car. At first, I thought uh, he was worried about being uh, hurt by the Secret Service, which would have been a little hard to cover up. But what he was really worried about, and I hadn't thought about until, until it was mentioned, is that what they wanted to do was get him away from the Capitol and not bring him back in time to do the certification. So that once it wasn't certified, because he needed to be there to certify it, but once it wasn't certified, then there would be confusion and chaos, which is the very thing that Donald Trump wanted. And then they could come up with some reason to turn it over to the House, to have them vote for the president. And of course, given the situation with the House, um, the Republicans probably would have won that. Well, frankly, thankfully, that didn't happen. But you see what I'm saying? There's some funky shit going on here. And then there was a situation where Donald Trump apparently uh, lunged at a Secret Service agent because they weren't going to take him to the uh, uh, to the Capitol on January 6th. He really wanted to go. He wanted to lead the charge of the toothless dumb fucks. But they wouldn't take him, so he lunged at the Secret Service agent. Now, um, Tony Arenado who was a Secret Service agent, which Donald Trump made a deputy chief of staff, said, oh, yeah, nah, that didn't happen. Well, now there's getting to be police officers that are saying, yeah, it really did happen. There's a lot of weird shit about the Secret Service, and the fact that they're being subpoenaed is very interesting. Now, Representative Benny Thompson, a Mississippi Democrat who chairs the committee, wrote a letter on Friday to Secret Service Director James Murray that the panel is seeking Secret Service text messages from January 5th and 6th, 2021, and reiterated three previous requests for information by the Congressional Committee. So again, it wasn't like they asked once and whoops, it was just a big mistake. They've asked a few times. And uh, they've either dragged their feet or said, nah, we're not going to do that. The Secret Service is a law enforcement division of the government. They have certain responsibilities. And turning over those texts would certainly be a responsibility. The fact that they chose to change their system and didn't protect the text two days after being asked by the January 6th committee to give them up, yeah, that sounds uh, either incompetent or a little criminal. The select committee has been informed that the USSS erased text messages from January 5th and January 6th. Funny, it's just those two days. As part of a device replacement program, in a statement issued on July 14, 2022, the USSS stated that it began to reset its mobile phones to factory settings as part of a pre-planned three-month system migration. In that process, data resident on the sum of the phones was lost. However, according to that USSS statement, none of the texts it, uh, the DHS Office of Inspector General was seeking had been lost in the migration, Thompson wrote. Accordingly, the Select Committee seeks the relevant text, as well as any other action reports that have been issued in any and all divisions of the USSS. United States Secret Service, that's what that means, pertaining or relating to any, in any way to the events of the January 6th insurrection. 
This whole thing sounds really suspicious. You know, there's been a lot of problems with the Secret Service over the years, and this is maybe the one that might crack it open. Because the January 6th committee, we know, are not in the mood to fuck around. And they had valuable information because the Secret Service was as close to Donald Trump as anybody. Those text messages could have given a lot of information, and the fact that they disappeared magically two days after they were asked for them is really problematic. So it's going to be interesting to see when the Secret Service uh, does show up for the subpoena and gets questioned, because uh, they're going to have a hard time explaining this bullshit. Now, you remember that meeting? You know, I think it was December 14th or 18th or something like that. It was that crazy meeting. You had Team Normal and Team Crazy. You had the likes of Sidney Powell, Brody Giuliani, Michael Flynn, those sorts of things. Were there? Well, there was another guy there. And he's claiming now that he's the one that put this whole meeting together. And he is Patrick Byrne. <laughs> he is the CEO of Overstock. What in the fuck is the CEO of Overstock doing in this situation? Well, of course, he's a big Trump humper. But he said he formed this meeting. Now, they weren't on the list of appointments with the president. But somehow they just popped over all these fucking crazies, including this CEO, and said, hey, we'd like to talk to the president. Let's sit down and hash some shit out. Well, it's funny, Sidney Powell in her deposition said, oh, it's just a short meeting, 10 to 15 minutes. The information that's come out of the January 6th committee says it was a marathon meeting. It went on for hours and it was unhinged. There was arguing, there was screaming, there was threats of violence. Yeah, this was a real shit show. And Patrick Byrne, <laughs> he claims to be the ringleader in this shit. I mean, how much crazier could it be? We've got the CEO of Overstock, part of the plan to overthrow this government. I mean, that's, that's fucking stupid. So, he t um, so what was interesting now, and the reason I bring him up is because he ended up testifying in front of the J6 committee. He's apparently feeling some heat. He showed up for the... Uh, deposition uh, just on Friday, yesterday, and he was there for nearly eight hours. Do you think the CEO is giving some shit up, or do you think he's just pleading the fifth? I doubt he's pleading the fifth, because if he was pleading the fifth, it wouldn't have gone eight hours. It would have gone an hour or two. So he's obviously given up some information. He's obviously scared shitless because he's nobody. He's the CEO of Overstock.com. I didn't even know that fucking thing still existed. <clears throat> so it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with from uh, uh, Patrick Byrne, CEO of Overstock. I'm sure we're going to see some video of it in upcoming uh, upcoming hearings. He entered the committee conference room a little before 10 a.m. Eastern, Eastern Time and ended before 7 p.m. Eastern Time with an hour lunch break. He took several small breaks to confer with his lawyer throughout the meeting. You know, he's a big shot. We're going to overthrow this motherfucking country. By the way, do you want some patio furniture? Fuck you. <laughs> 
Byrne played an active role supporting efforts to question and push baseless claims about the 2020 election, including attending a meeting in mid-December at the White House to discuss strategies to overturn the election. Now, if I'm going to overthrow the government, there's a lot of people I might call. I can understand Michael Flynn because he is a general. I can understand a lawyer like Rudy Giuliani, as crazy as that motherfucker is. At least he's a lawyer, and, and, and you could want him in there. But the CEO of Overstock.com, what can he bring to the table? I don't know. Apparently money. Apparently he financed a lot of shit around this January 6th meeting and may have been responsible for buses and such coming up to the Capitol. Who the fuck knows, really? That meeting with Trump also included former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and his lawyer, Sidney Powell, as well as some White House staff. It focused on ideas to block Joe Biden's certification as president and discuss the prospects of seizing voting machines. White House officials in the meeting pushed back at the idea in a heated exchanges. Uh, speaking to reporters after the testimony, Byrne described the heated December 18, 2020 meeting as at the White House as benign. Well, of course you do. Sidney Powell said it was t- 10 to 15 minutes. You say it was benign, but everybody else who was there and who heard it said it was a shit show. Patrick, here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to lie under oath to the January 6th committee. You're probably already in some deep shit. You don't need perjury tacked onto this motherfucker. Oh, man, these people are stupid. They think they're so right and they're willing to lie because it's for the greater good. Patrick, you're fucked, and I'm glad of it. Talking about people who are fucked, let's talk about people that are fucked. Remember John Eastman. John Eastman... um, you remember, he, he was the lawyer in the Trump administration. He's the one that was the architect for the, uh, um, for the insurrection. You know, he came up with the theories and why it would work and how it would work. He knew it wouldn't work. He knew it wasn't legal, but he was this fixer guy who was trying to come up with the loopholes or, or whatever lies they thought they could push off. Well... You remember there was a video in New Mexico where he was, and he was grabbed up by the federal agents. They uh, frisked him. They took his phone, and he was saying, I want to see some paperwork on this. (laughs) So they showed him some paperwork, and they took his phone. And then, of course, John Eastman went to a federal judge and said, they can't do that. It's against my constitutional rights. Well, a federal judge in New Mexico won't step in to protect Trump attorney John Eastman's seized cell phone from the Justice Department investigators after Eastman was searched as part of the January 6th related criminal inquiry. Now, U.S. District Judge Robert Brack rejected Eastman's arguments for emergency help from the court in an opinion Friday. Eastman had asked the court to block federal investigators from using the contents of his phone in the probe. What's wrong, John? Something there you don't want people to see? I bet there is. I bet he thought nobody would ever grab his phone and it's all still sitting there. 
Bragg validated the court-approved warrant that had enabled the FBI to take and unlock Eastman's phone when agents approached him outside a restaurant in New Mexico last month. Now, the judge noted that the Justice Department said it would get a second warrant before searching the phone. Now, we don't know if the DOJ has actually taken that step. So they had a search warrant to take the phone. They were going to get another search warrant to look at the phone, but we don't know if that's been done as yet. I have to believe that's the next step. There'd be no point in grabbing the phone unless you were going to look into it. The department typically puts in place what's called a filter team when dealing with material seized from attorneys or that could be privileged. So, you see, what they have to do is they have to go through this thing, and there could very well be some privileged information in there, and they've got to sift that out of there before they can look at all the things that uh, might pertain to what they're talking about. Because there is no evidence that the government has searched the phone or plans to search it without the benefit of a filter team, and because the warrant specifies that no search of the phone will occur until further order of the court, Eastman fails to show a likelihood of success on one of his constitutional arguments, the judge wrote. Brack continued, the court is relying to a considerable extent on the assertion in the warrant that the investigative team will not examine the contents of the phone until it seeks a second warrant. And you can bet they're going to do that. If they don't do that, it screws up any evidence they find. Why would they, why would they risk that? Now, the judge said federal investigators must update the court later this month on the handling of the phone, and Eastman still can make some legal arguments in the New Mexico federal court. Brack also rejected Eastman's argument that his communications could be protected under the First Amendment. Yeah, no. The government in, government's interest in investigating the January 6th attacks on the Capitol is substantial, the judge said. So, one by one, Donald Trump's little acolytes are becoming fucked. <clears throat> John Eastman is one of those guys like Mark Meadows who's probably going to take the brunt of the uh, punishment. Donald Trump will probably get indicted. He probably won't see the inside of a jail cell, but everything he's ever worked for will be destroyed. He won't be able to run for office again. He'll be, he'll be demoted down to fucking nothing, which is a terrible punishment for somebody who's a narcissist. But people like... Mark Meadows, and John Eastman. These folks are going to be fucked, mainly because um, they have no protection. You know, John Eastman might have some protection in the sense that he's a lawyer and there might be some privileged material, but that is limited, and they aren't looking for the privileged material. They are looking for things that pertain to January 6th. Now, the important thing you have to understand about privilege, privilege is pretty clear. If it's between uh, uh, a lawyer and a client, it is privileged, and you can't expose that unless, <laughs> unless it was in the commission of uh, breaking the law. And clearly, inciting a riot, planning a riot, planning an insurrection, an overthrow of the government, that's a little illegal. So that's where the, uh, the, the privilege really won't matter. 
If it's in the commission of a crime, privilege is thrown out the fucking window. And this is really what has to be worrying John Eastman. Now, John's a lawyer of some note. He's been a lawyer for many years. He clerked uh, for Alito, I think, in the Supreme Court. So, you know, he's done his due diligence to become a lawyer. But he's, he's he's, he's a criminal at the same time. He looks for ways that he can sidestep the rules, undermine the rules to get what he wants or what his client wants. And that doesn't play out too well. Lawyers don't last long if they do that sort of thing. And that's exactly who John Eastman is. He is a lawyer of some note, but he's a fucking criminal. He breaks the law at every turn. And now he's learning the phrase, fuck around and find out, because he is going to find out. He and Mark Meadows are going to be two of the people that are going to take the fall hard. And if you think Donald Trump isn't going to try to throw them under the bus, you're, cool, you're fooling yourself. But Donald Trump's got enough problems of his own. He's not going to be able to pawn off everything to John Eastman and Mark Meadows, because John Eastman and Mark Meadows was in, were in communication with Donald Trump. Donald Trump knew everything they were going to do. So while he might try to throw them under the bus, the fact is he was the president. The buck stopped with him. And he was involved. So if he's involved, he's just as complicit as these two fucking clowns are as well. All right, we will take a quick break. And we will be right back. On every show, I tell you that if you have questions, comments, or complaints, just reach out to me at rationalboomer at gmail.com. Those emails come directly to me, and your input is crucial to this show. The show is called Rational Boomer Podcast, but that's not to suggest that I'm the Rational Boomer. I am not. I am simply a Rational Boomer. All of you are Rational Boomers. Anybody of a like mind is a Rational Boomer. Strength comes in numbers and not through an individual. You have perceptions and insights that may have never occurred to me. This isn't a show about me. This is a show about us and gaining a voice in this country. There's 70 million baby boomers in this country. Yeah, I know the younger folks would prefer to push us aside. Every generation has done that. But we are a formidable force if we can get together and speak in one voice. This is why I encourage you to let your friends and family know about the Rational Boomer podcast, not to satisfy my ego, but to give us more power, a stronger voice to help right this ship we call the United States of America. Lastly, I'm offering the opportunity for my listeners to be on the show. Now, it could be two minutes, it could be a half hour, it could be the whole fucking show. I'd much rather have you on the show than somebody pimping a podcast or a book. I want to hear what you think. I want to know what you know. The Rational Boomer Podcast is all about us. All right, last week Joe Biden used a speech on the end of Roe v. Wade to draw attention to the cruelty of abortion bans. The most attention-grabbing section of his address focused on the heart-wrenching case of a 10-year-old girl rape victim who was denied abortion in Ohio. We've heard this story. We've talked about this story, how this 10-year-old girl in Ohio was raped, then went to Indiana to get an abortion. And then it became a mess. This woman, this woman, this child was traumatized, raped, and then it got even worse 
with the Republican Party and the media. Since then, the girl's case has been the subject of speculation, lies, and callous disregard from Republicans and conservative media. But what happened to this young girl in Ohio isn't what happens when anti-abortion Republicans are overzealous. It's what happens when their plan is perfectly executed. Now, this media firestorm surrounding the girl's case came to a head on Wednesday when the Wall Street Journal editorial board ran a piece that described reports of the 10-year-old girl as fanciful and an unlikely story. The headline alone is enough to sicken anyone who cares about the safety of children, calling a girl impregnated by a rapist trapped in a state that bans abortion. An abortion story too good to confirm. That's what they called it. Now, you may be saying to yourself, Wall Street Journal, that's a pretty solid publication. How, how, why would they do that? I'll tell you why they did that, because you know who owns the Wall Street Journal now? Rupert Murdoch, same fuck that owns Fox News. So if you thought Wall Street Journal was a serious news uh, source, uh, not so much anymore. A lot of words come to mind when I think about lifelong trauma of your government forcing you to carry your rapist child when you yourself are still a child, but good isn't one of them. What we seem to have here is a presidential seal of approval on an unlikely story from a biased source that neatly fits the progressive narrative but can't be confirmed. That's what the Wall Street Journal editorial board wrote. Now, previously, Fox News called the rape victim story a hoax. Of course they did. It was a hoax like COVID where a million people died, a hoax uh, like uh, the connection between Donald Trump and the Russians. It was a hoax, but it wasn't. Ohio Attorney General David Yost called it a fabrication without bothering to explain his reasoning. He just said it. He just pulled this out of his ass. And in in a since-deleted tweet, yeah, he deleted it, Representative Jim Jordan, that fucking piece of shit, encouraged his followers to question the validity of the child's story. As the executive editor of Vanity Fair tweeted, doxing a 10-year-old rape victim is actually quite literally what the Wall Street Journal is calling for. Hours after the Journal editorial went live, the Indianapolis Star and the Columbus Dispatch reported that a man had been arrested and charged with raping the girl, silencing the critics. Yeah, it silenced them. They were lying again. They were wrong again. But did they apologize? Fuck no. But it bears repeating that the girl that these powerfully mostly male lawmakers and journalists were attacking, they were attacking a 10-year-old. As Alyssa Rosenberg noted at the Washington Post, she's old enough to watch Pixar movies, but still too young for Marvel movies. She probably just got permission to cross the street without adult uh, uh, supervision, and she's about to learn about fractions and solve problems with decimals. She's still considered by most parents to be too young to have a phone. A 10-year-old girl isn't old enough to go to Disneyland by herself, but the Republican Party seems to think she's old enough to become a mother. Fucking despicable. 
Now, in trying to dissuade the public that the story was false, Republicans inadvertently highlighted the horrifying truth, the harrowing harrowing tale of an abused child forced to carry a rapist baby to term is not an accidental quirk in the abortion bans they're passing. It's what they are designed to do. Ohio, like most states with new abortion bans, deliberately makes no exceptions for rape or incest. The lack of provisions to protect rape victims is not an omission. It is premeditated. This is what they want. This is what they expect. A 10-year-old girl gets raped, gets pregnant. Nope, you can't have an abortion. So they call it a hoax, just like they always do. I mean, the Republicans have been doing this for six years at minimum since Donald Trump took office. Anything that comes out that is negative toward the Republican Party, they say it's a hoax. They say it's not true. They say it never happened. Well, in this case, they were proven wrong very quickly. And now we've got a lot of embarrassed people. But you know what the uh, Indiana Attorney General did? He was butthurt about this, that he couldn't complain about it. Now, Indiana hasn't outlawed abortions as yet, so this little girl and her family were perfectly in their legal rights to go to Indiana to get this abortion. But for some reason, this irritated the attorney general or the governor. I don't know who it was. It's fucking Indiana. Who cares? But uh, now this guy tried to call out and kind of doxed the doctor who performed the abortion. Now, this doctor did everything above board and perfectly legal, but, of course, uh, these fucks in Indiana tried to make it sound like uh, that she was a poor doctor, that she didn't keep records, and that we're going to look into it, and we're going to throw her in jail and all this stuff. But here's the problem. They checked into it, and guess what? They were wrong again. She did everything above board in the way it was supposed to be. So they tell us that a 10-year-old girl wasn't raped and didn't get pregnant. We, they tell us that a doctor performed an abortion on a 10-year-old girl that didn't exist. And then they said she did something illegal, which she didn't. My God, if I was wrong that much in my TikToks or in my podcast, if I was wrong that much, nobody would be listening to this motherfucker. It's amazing the shit you hear coming out of the mouths of Republicans. It's fucking absolutely appalling. I'm hoping that these people are horribly embarrassed. But you know what? When you look at somebody like Jim Jordan, who ignored um, uh, ignored student athletes at the University of or, or at uh, Ohio State, when he ignored hundreds of kids being abused. I don't think he feels anything. In fact, somebody tried to talk to him, and he wouldn't admit uh, that he was wrong. He tried to divert and distract, just like Republicans do. But he did delete the TikTok, or the TikTok, the uh, tweet, <laughs> just in case there were some people who didn't see it. Well, those that didn't see it are certainly fucking hearing about it. And Jim Jordan, you're an idiot. You're fucking stupid. You've never passed a bill all the time. You've been in the House of Representatives. You've never done anything but created a shit show whenever you went into any meeting or any hearing. You're a fucking piece of shit and you need to be gone.
and I'm hoping that they have a lot of evidence on you with this insurrection. I would love to see you expelled from the House of Representatives and ultimately arrested. But we'll have to wait for that and see what happens. Talk about being arrested and going on trial. You know, Steve Bannon, that piece of shit, thinks of himself as a very clever guy. You can see it in his face. He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room always. The former White House advisor and Breitbart executive chairman has been throwing bombs and dodging consequences fairly successfully for years now. So how then to respond to Bannon's offer over the weekend to finally testify before the House January 6th committee after refusing to cooperate for a long time, for months? The answer is with a grain of salt big enough to coat a lifetime supply of pretzels. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's a good analogy. I have to give him that. But Steve Bannon, of course, said, I don't have to testify. I have privilege. I have this. I have that. And then when it came down to nut-cutting time, when he was getting closer to going on trial, he said, well, they aren't going for my bluff, so I better do something. So he calls Donald Trump and has Donald Trump write a permission note for him to be able to testify to release him from his executive privilege, <clears throat> which never existed. There was no executive privilege. It was all a big show. And you can tell what Bannon was doing. He always tries to weasel his way out of things. So he thought if he went to the January 6th committee, I'm important. They're going to want to hear from me. They'll jump at the opportunity to hear from me. He thought if he could go to them and said, okay, now I will talk, that he might get these charges dropped. Well, he's a little late. He was indicted. It's not up to the January 6th committee Right now, it's up to the DOJ. He already broke the law. So even if he did testify, it wouldn't make a difference. He still broke the law, and he still has to pay the price. But the other part of it is, do you want to listen to him? Because he's a known liar. He's going to go in there and try to turn this into a shit show. So the January 6th committee has pretty much ignored him. And this is causing him to lose his shit. Let's take a close look at the letter Bannon's lawyer sent to committee chair Benny Thompson, which was first reported by The Guardian. <clears throat> Mr. Bannon has not had a change of posture or heart, Robert Costello wrote. Former President Donald Trump had invoked executive privilege in October, he explained, preventing his client from providing the testimony and documents that the committee had subpoenaed. See, see what he was doing here. Oh, I wanted to talk. Hell yes, I wanted to talk, but I couldn't because the former president invoked executive privilege on me. So now Bannon is all scared shitless, and he goes to Donnie. He goes, Donnie, you got to help me out here. Tell him that you revoke the uh, executive privilege so I can say I wasn't really being a bad guy. I was just following what my president was telling me. Well, the January 6th committee isn't buying it, and guess what? Steve Bannon goes to trial Monday, two days from now. Fuck you, Steve Bannon. Now things have changed. Trump has provided a letter informing Bannon that Trump will waive executive privilege for you, which allows you to go in and testify truthfully and fairly as per the request of the unselect committee of political thugs and hacks. You know... 
If you want a favor from the January 6th committee, probably don't want to insult them. So these thugs and hacks, he says, who have not, who have allowed no due process, no cross-examination, and no real Republican members or witnesses to be present or interviewed. Costello explained that his, this now means Bannon is willing to and indeed prefers to testify at your public hearing. Fuck you, Bannon. Too little, too late. There's clearly a lot to unpack there, not not least the former president's ever-loose grasp on the niceties of the English language. The biggest surface-level takeaway is that if Trump was the reason Bannon couldn't testify before, he's now willing to stand aside and allow Bannon testimony, ideally publicly. Yeah, it had to be publicly. See, Bannon had terms for him to testify. Somehow, he thinks he has leverage. Now, he doesn't. Why would Trump, after spending years arguing for a nearly despotic view of executive power, yield on this front? None of the answers make Bannon's offer very appealing. I'll tell you why Donald Trump wants Bannon to talk. Donald Trump is angry as shit at Kevin McCarthy for not following up and getting other Republicans on this committee. Instead, Kevin McCarthy didn't get what he wanted. He pouted and he ran away. So Donald Trump watches these hearings and there's no opposition to the evidence given. He needs somebody to stand up for him. He needs somebody to create some chaos, try to change the narrative. Steve Bannon is his choice to do that. And if you think the January 6th committee doesn't get it, you'd be surprised. Steve Bannon's not going to get an opportunity to talk in front of the January 6th committee. He's going to trial Monday. For the next month or so, he's going to be fucking busy. So, Bannon, too fucking bad. You lost again. You thought you were smarter than everybody in the room. Turns out you're not smarter than fucking anybody. You're an idiot. All right, President Joe Biden on Friday urged his party to quickly pass legislation lowering the cost of prescription drugs and health care insurance and to set aside the rest of his economic and climate agenda in Congress for now. This is what irritates me about Joe Biden. We've got this bill. And Joe Manchin, once again, they thought they had him negotiating, and they thought he said he would go. In fact, this particular bill, he said he would approve. Then when it comes back up to him, he says, yeah, you know, now nah, I don't really want to support the climate change, and I don't want to um, agree with the tax provisions. Well, the climate change is interesting. Those are big words from a guy who gets a million dollars a year from a fucking coal mine. Of course he doesn't want to deal with climate change. He doesn't give a shit about the world or the country and the health of the world and the country. All he worries about is the money going in his pocket and in the pockets of his buddies. Fuck him. Now, as far as the tax provisions, what was he against there? Well, Joe Manchin was against raising taxes on the rich. Well, that's nice, Joe. It's a bitter blow for Democrats who had hoped to take robust action to fight climate change and expand the social safety net, but it's one made of political necessity. But see, here's my point. They had a bill. Joe Biden liked the bill. 
the Democrats like the bill. Joe Manchin from this little state, West Virginia, and I'm not putting down West Virginia. I know we have some people out there. But the amount of people he has as constituents is minuscule compared to the rest of the country. He says, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. And Joe says, okay, cool, Joe, just pass it anyway so it makes me look good. That's the problem with Joe, oh, with Joe Biden. He's been very weak. He, he's the most powerful man in the world. Come on, Joe, you got to do better than this, motherfucker. With Senator Joe Manchin's opposition to the new spending aimed at combating climate change, something he argues would contribute to the record of inf- record inflation and looming health insurance premium hikes this fall. Biden was forced to accept reality and swallow a slimmed-down bill that would give Democrats a big legislative victory ahead of November's midterm elections. The president urged passage of the legislation this month and then pledged to take strong executive action to address the climate crisis. I've said this all along. Nobody's going to pass anything for you, Joe. Just executive order as much shit as you possibly can and then win the fucking November elections and then you can do what you want. Now, after decades of fierce opposition from powerful special interests, Democrats have come together, beaten back the pharmaceutical industry, and are prepared to give Medicare the power to negotiate lower drug prices to prevent an increase in health insurance premiums for millions of families with coverage under the Affordable Care Act, Biden said in a statement issued by the White House. Now, he makes a good point. There was a tax break for health insurance, and... um, I mean, I got it. It's saving me a ton of money. So Joe Biden wants to still pass this, even though the climate change and the tax thing isn't there. But he can still pass this this health care thing um, and the lower drug prices. And I got to be honest with you, come December 31st or January 1st, those fucking health care prices are going to go up. It's going to cost me double. I mean, I'll deal with it, but this is going to be harmful to a lot of people. So Joe's in a tight spot. As much as I'd like for him to be strong, he probably has to do something. He has to do something before the midterms to show that he's done something. So that's what he's thinking in his head right now. So as much as I'd like them to hold out for the climate change and the tax provisions, they really do need to tend to the uh, health care stuff because that is going to be devastating on a lot of folks. So hopefully we'll get something passed. But, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, Joe Manchin will say, I'll do it if you do this. And then when he finally gets it again, he'll probably say, yeah, no, I want something more. I want something bigger. I want something better. I cannot understand what's in Joe Manchin's mind, other than he's very corrupt and he's only worried about making money for himself and his supporters. And I don't mean people who voted for him. I mean the guy that puts money in his pocket. Here's another thing that Joe Biden was looking at doing that kind of annoys me. And I don't think he wanted this to get out. President Joe Biden has dropped his plans to nominate a Kentucky anti-abortion attorney to a lifetime federal judgeship, a White House spokes 
person said Friday. Biden had come under intense criticism from Democrats and reproductive rights groups after the Louisville Courier Journal broke the news that he planned to pick Chad Meredith for a seat on the U.S. District Court in eastern Kentucky. Now remember, we're talking Kentucky. Why would Joe Biden do this? Meredith's potential nomination appeared to be part of a broader deal, a deal on a mix of judicial nominees being worked out behind the scenes between the White House and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who happens to be from Kentucky. In the end, though, it was a Republican, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, who appeared to tank the potential nomination. In considering potential district court nominees, the White House learned that Senator Rand Paul will not return a blue slip on Chad Meredith. Why, I don't know. Rand Paul would try to own the Democrats at any turn. White House spokesman Andrew Bates said in a statement, therefore, the White House will not nominate Meredith. So you see what happened here. Joe Biden was trying to work a side deal with Mitch McConnell. Joe Biden was trying to work a deal with the fucking devil. He wanted some stuff, and Mitch said, I'll give you some stuff, but you got to make this guy a judge. And Joe Biden did it. I don't know what kind of pressure Joe Biden was under, but uh, that is a questionable decision, I think, by our president. It is a tradition in the Senate Judiciary Committee that its chair will not advance a judicial nominee until both senators from that nominee's home state turn in a so-called blue slip, literally a blue piece of paper signaling that they are on board with moving forward. Because Paul said he would not turn in a blue slip for Meredith, he effectively killed the nomination. A Paul spokesman did not immediately respond to a request for comment on why he opposed Meredith's potential nomination. I can tell you maybe one reason. Maybe he didn't like what Mitch McConnell was giving up to Joe Biden. He was going to take a hit on this anti-abortion judge in Kentucky because he wanted to make sure that Biden didn't get what he wanted. I don't like the idea that Joe Biden is dealing with the devil. I, and, and, and the fact of the matter is, as the president of the United States, he shouldn't have to play these games. He shouldn't have to do this bullshit. But again, I'll remind you, I like Joe Biden. I think he was the right person to be put in the position to beat Donald Trump. I think he was the one person that could beat Donald Trump. I think he's done some good things as president of the United States, but he's just too fucking old school and too weak. He's not a tough guy in there, and we need somebody who's tough. I mean, the whole era of the old white man has got to go by the wayside. These are different times, different situations, different problems. We need somebody with a sharp mind that can handle these problems. I'm not saying Joe Biden doesn't have a sharp mind. I'm saying his mind is antiquated and not in a medical way. It's antiquated in 50 years of being in Congress. Things don't run like they used to. You can't do the things you used to do. You need to play the game at the right level. And I don't know if Joe Biden can do that. We'll see how things play out the remaining two years. Uh, and as much as I like Joe Biden, I'm a little concerned about the way he handles things. 
It used to be the saying something extreme about abortion would be considered toxic. Even in the Republican Party, remember a guy named Todd Aiken in 2012. Aiken, then a Republican congressman, looked like he was all set to beat incumbent Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill. But then he started talking about something he knew nothing about. How women get pregnant. Specifically, he talked about pregnancy caused by rape. (laughs) And this is what he said. See if you remember this. From what I understand from doctors, that's really rare. He said if it's a legitimate rape, the female body has ways to try to shut the whole thing down. But let's assume maybe that didn't work or something. I think there should be some punishment. But the punishment ought to be on the rapist. What the fuck does that even mean? Where did he come up with this shit? It's all fairy tale shit that he either made up or some idiot told him uh, because he didn't know or because he wanted to see if he'd be stupid enough to repeat it. Now, Aiken's comments were widely denounced as ignorant and offensive, including by members of his own party. National Republicans unsuccessfully pushed for him to drop out of the race. And then, of course, he lost to McCaskill. There was also Richard Mordock, another 2012 GOP Senate candidate who justified opposing abortion in cases of rape, saying that if a woman becomes pregnant under those circumstances, it's something that God intended. Oh, okay. In this case, National Republicans distanced themselves from Mordock comments, even while many of them stood by him, he lost his Senate race. In 2010, Nevada GOP Senate candidate Sharon Engel was asked what she would say to a young girl who was raped by her father, became pregnant, and was considering abortion. She said, I think two wrongs don't make a right, Engel replied, and I have been in that situation of counseling young girls, not 13, but 15, who have had a very at-risk, difficult pregnancies. And my counsel was to look for some alternatives, which they did. And they found that they had made what was really a lemon situation into lemonade. Well, she lost her race. Oh, big surprise. But the thing is, these sorts of positions are no longer outliers in the GOP. They aren't strange. They aren't odd. The rhetoric is not only widely embraced, but this stance of forced birth has become law in many states, as we know, thanks to the Supreme Court's conservative majority overturning Roe v. Wade. It's true that abortions resulting from rape and incest are a small percentage of overall abortions. And to be clear, there are no good or bad reasons for having an abortion. But those cases often receive the most attention because they're shocking and horrifying, like a 10-year-old girl being raped and becoming pregnant. But these people will say virtually anything, absolutely fucking anything. Nothing could provide a clearer example of where the Republican Party is now than the case of the 10-year-old in Ohio who was impregnated by her rapist and then barred from having an abortion in her own state. The girl ended up traveling to Indiana. We talked about that earlier in the podcast. But this is where the Republicans are now. They care nothing for women, and clearly they care nothing for the health of children. They only want what they want, and they want it fucking now. And that's the problem with their whole stance on abortion. We're talking about something that was settled law for 50 years, and now they want to change it. 
but in addition to changing it, they're changing the whole right to privacy, which is going to open up a whole nother can of worms, not only for Democrats, but for Republicans. But as I've told you before, they have no foresight. They don't think a fucking head. They don't think this loss of right to privacy isn't going to smack them in the face. Trust me, it is. There are plenty of things that are going to smack them in the face. It's amazing to me how stupid our representatives are. You would like to think they are intelligent, educated people who are looking to serve the public. When all we find with the Republican Party particularly is they are only serving themselves. Fucking tired of it. I'm very tired of it. All right, let's wrap things up for the Rational Boomer podcast. I want to thank you for spending time with me, listening to what I have to say. I appreciate it immensely. I hope you have a great day, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.